This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Stephen Fiddler. Stephen Fiddler is the Brussels Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal. Steve, uh, we're coming close to the end of 2015 now. What are the main political uh, highlights, if you like, of the past year that have struck you the most? Um, well, I don't know that there were many highlights. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say this is the year of uh, the migration and the refugee crisis has arrived on the agenda. Um, no one can say that the Europeans have caused the crisis, but the way that it's been dealt with, I, I don't think, has instilled a lot of confidence um, uh, across the bloc. I think there's an element of, of uh, incoherence in some of the early actions in particular. And a number of people have said to me that this is a year in which they feel that the Germans in particular, and Angela Merkel in particular, has lost, uh, has lost influence, lost her ability to to um, influence other uh, countries, other governments in, in Europe. And that's in contrast with the, the last major crisis, the Euro crisis, in which the Germans were really in the lead. Uh, and not everybody appreciated uh, the policy that they brought to the table. Not everybody thought that they had handled it particularly well. But there was no question who was leading it. And I think now we're looking at the, the, the migration crisis and, and she in particular has a, has a problem of, of, of uh, persuading Eastern Europeans to go along with her uh, way of resolving it. So if Germany is losing its traditional leadership role and Angela Merkel in particular, so unlike the Eurozone crisis, whether you agreed or not, as you said, with uh, the German policy on handling or trying to solve the Eurozone crisis, when it comes to migration, that means there's no leadership at all at the moment as far as how the EU is tackling the migration crisis. It does seem that there is uh, much less coherence than there, there was before. I mean, there is an effort uh, by the Germans, and perhaps next year we'll see... Um, we'll see Merkel and the, and the German government resuming the position we're used to it having of late. And we've noticed a number of, of uh, steps in the last few weeks, for example, in which the Germans and the French have come together in a traditional way after, you know, in particular after the attacks in, the attacks in Paris, to push forward agenda items, the latest of which is an idea to kind of beef up the, the, the European Union border force and to uh, allow it to intervene in countries uh, even when it hasn't been invited to. Okay, so clearly the, the migration crisis, the refugee crisis as well as some would call it, is having a clear impact on public opinion in Europe, even though people may not know exactly where, as you say, where the origin lies and whose fault it is, quote-unquote. Uh, the European Union seems to be even less popular in almost every member state than, than before. Do you agree with that? I think there's a, there is certainly a, blow, a blowback uh, you know, across a number of major... Uh, countries, we've seen um, we've seen what's happened in the first round of uh, uh, elections in in France and the uh, uh, the strength of the of the, the National Front there. We've seen a, 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 a right wing government come to power in Poland. We have seen um, what's been happening in the UK. And the and and the sentiment, the feeling that the migration crisis will not help uh, efforts to, uh, to keep the United Kingdom uh, in the EU. Uh, and as you know, there'll be a referendum by 2017 on that subject. And the, sense, the sentiment that somehow that we could sort of, we in the UK could, 
could distance ourselves from, from the refugee crisis if we were to leave the EU, whether that's right or not. There's certainly a, a fear that this kind of sentiment could influence the, the referendum, which is probably coming next year. Right. So let's talk a bit about the UK since you mentioned it. Obviously, migration is going to be a key issue, even though it's not part of Cameron's so-called demands. But in the past few weeks, we know that David Cameron has finally uh, articulated his so-called demands in the renegotiation he's put into his European partners. Um, some of them seem like motherhood and apple pie, competitiveness, and more emphasis on jobs and growth, and more interest in the more pursuing trade and concluding trade deals, better regulation, etc. Things that people would be difficult to, to not to, 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 uh, to support. But the other stuff, there are sticking points out there. Where, where do you think the Cameron's biggest headaches lie in terms of convincing his European partners? Well, there are two areas, I think. Uh, one is uh, the, uh, the position of the UK outside the euro and its, uh, its, its, its wish to see um, the EU not as, not as something with, a, with one currency, but as a multi-currency union. I mean, that's what it is de facto. Uh, but... Um, Cameron wants to prevent the uh, UK from being outvoted uh, regularly on, under the sort of qualified majority vote. Um, and that's something that uh, I think a lot of Eurozone members would be concerned about uh, from, the, from the vantage point that they worry that, uh, you know, if they give the British an effective veto over what goes on in the Eurozone, they're giving effectively the City of London um, the the uh, prime position in, in in dictating what happens in the eurozone. Uh, the the second thing is uh, the question of um, uh, migration and uh, free movement, and uh, in particular uh, what happens with the um, uh, with uh, benefits and social benefits and welfare payments. The issue seems in the UK uh, to be particularly uh, around um, in-work benefits and um, Cameron has repeatedly mentioned this question of four years before, uh, work, working for four years before uh, qualifying for benefits but he's been repeatedly told by the Europeans that if he wants that uh, four-year limit then he's going to have to impose it not only on people who come from other places in the European Union but also on, on, on the British uh, workers, so they would have to qualify. I suspect if there's a solution to be reached here, it's something that's going to come from a combination of a change in, in British uh, law and, and some, uh, some uh, tweaks and agreements from the, the European side that doesn't, uh, but nonetheless doesn't allow discrimination between uh, between migrant workers from other EU states and, and, and British workers. Well, let's talk about briefly one of the, the, the first of those two points you mentioned, i.e. The, the Eurozone against the non-Eurozone. And just to remind everybody, of course, uh, there are nine countries, member states of the European Union, who are not members of the Eurozone, so it's not only the United Kingdom. But this is, issue had to, would have to have been addressed anyway. Surely there's so-called caucusing of Eurozone countries vis-à-vis non-Eurozone countries. Uh, is it just the fact that it's part of a negotiation which makes it more, more tense and more, more controversial, more political, rather more relaxed and more statesmanlike discussion which might have taken place absent a referendum in the background? I think, I think it's partly that. It's certainly partly the timing of it. Um, uh, I mean, there are the UK, uh, most other uh, non-Eurozone members are uh, at some point in the future theoretically supposed to become members of the Eurozone with the exception of, uh, of, of Denmark as well as the UK. Uh, 
So they're all in this, in this club that would eventually supposedly join the Eurozone. Whether they will or not is, of course, another, uh, another question. And I think this would have, uh, sooner or later, have been an issue, as you say. But I think the question, the issue is now, um, given what the European Union has on its plate, there is a certain amount of um, resistance and, and irritation among other European governments that the UK is kind of bringing up this subject in, a, in you know, a sort of creating a sort of crisis almost voluntarily. It's like a it's not something that they need to cope with and deal with at this time, but the UK has brought it forward. Um, and I, I think that's, that's certainly part of the, uh, part of the uh, challenge here for, for Cameron to deal with. Okay. And then on the second point you made, uh, you raised about the in-work benefits, basically, and the four-year timeline, as it were. You suggested that might be a solution through UK law, but I think people are starting to say this is the big issue that, around which little agreement seems to be emerging. I mean, it could be a, not so much a deal-breaker, but it's certainly slowing down progress in the negotiations as a whole. Is that a fair comment? I think I think this is the I think this is the big question. I mean, there is a, an ability to um, uh, discriminate up to to some point. Uh, the European Court of Justice has brought uh, has has uh, supported uh, a couple of cases in which people have turned up and and essentially claimed benefits. So. Uh, you know when they haven't really uh, looked like contributing at all economically to uh, to uh, a country's economy, so there is a sort of there is a little space there on that side, and there is, as I say, space on the other side for the UK to change its own law. Um, it's problematic. I suspect uh, there will be there is a deal there to be done. What that deal will look like is uh, obviously the big question, and whether it will allow. Cameron uh, to seriously say that he's kind of moved the needle on this and whether it's uh, and he won't be credibly uh, challenged uh, as, a, as a kind of fig leaf that makes no practical difference. I mean that is a that's the question um, and obviously anyway whatever deal he has there will be a group of uh, anti-EU uh, people in the UK who's going to say this has really made no difference at all to the true relationship between the UK and, and, and the EU. Okay, since we started the conversation talking about leadership, let's, let's close the conversation by broadening discussion about leadership beyond Angela Merkel. As things stand, where, where are Europe's leaders? Do we talk about Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the European Commission? Do we talk about Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, the former Polish Prime Minister? Do we talk about François Hollande? Is Merkel maybe coming back? Will Britain start playing some kind of new leadership role? Where is, where, where is the leadership in Europe coming from And as we look forward to 2016? I think it would be fair to say that, that uh, if you look at the generation of politicians that rose through the ranks in the, in the 1990s until the 2008 financial crisis, they really didn't, uh, they weren't a generation that dealt with uh, extraordinary challenges, not like the previous generation had through the Cold War and the, and, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. In, in fact, the generation which really had, uh, the only challenge was to sort of distribute the plenty and distribute the wealth. And it's not clear, I think, or one hears many people say, it's not clear that this, that the, the politicians that grew up in that generation are really equipped to deal with the strategic challenges that, that, that exist in Europe. I mean, they are almost, to a man or a woman, extremely tactical in their, in their approaches. They're very... Short-termist. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this is the nature of, of modern politics, but there is, I think there's a question about whether they... Um, you know, have the wherewithal to, to cope with the uh, uh, with the issues. 
Um, and then, of course, there are the personalities that that that, that one sees. I mean, uh, Jean Claude Juncker, as you say, is, is is there. He's promised a more political uh, leadership of the European Commission, and I think that's certainly what we've got. But um, but it's also a leadership that causes enormous amounts of irritation with uh, among some of the uh, governments, some of the EU governments, and some of the member states. Similarly, Donald Tusk's way of uh, way of operating is not to uh, and not to everybody's tastes, and some of the things that his predecessor did, you know, intervening on the, and, and bringing people together on the economy, and um, uh, doesn't seem to be something that he's greatly interested in. And uh, he, 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 uh, there are obviously some reservations about him. Um, Merkel has been the um, the obvious standout leader, and as I say, perhaps it'll, she will come back, but her position has been weakened uh, this year. Hollande has uh, shown some um, capacity to um, uh, come back after the uh, two uh, terrorist <coughs> attacks in, in, in Paris, um, but he faces a big challenge from his, his right wing. Stephen Fiddler, thank you very much for your time.